0: Blob Talk Radio.
1: Good morning.
2: I'm Nicole Airdix, and I would like to welcome you to the Inclusive Class Podcast. My co-host, Terry Morrow, and I are proud to present a very special event on today's podcast, called the Inclusive Class Roundtable. This roundtable will feature a panel discussion with seven guests who are experts on the topic of inclusive education. Guided by facilitator Lori Hunt, our guests will discuss strategies that parents can use when schools say no to inclusion. If you are listening live, we will not be taking phone calls this morning. I would like to begin our roundtable by introducing you to our facilitator, Lori Hunt. Lori is a parent advocate and founder of the online resource com. Welcome, Lori, and thank you for guiding our discussion this morning.
3: Good morning. Thank you, Nicole and Terry, so much for um having me facilitate this conversation. Uh, as you know, you've been an unbelievable resource to our family as we've learned and about inclusion over the last year, and I've listened to every one of the guests on your show. And um I'm just thrilled to be able to speak with them, and um, really, really honored and humbled that you that I get to do this. So thank you. Um, before we begin with our questions, I would like to introduce you to our panel of experts. Um, first, we have Tom Mayhill, who has a 43-year career in special education, and is currently a professor at Purdue University Calumet. Good morning, Tom.
4: Good morning, Lori, and good morning to our listeners, Nicole, Terry, and the panel.
3: Next, we have Paula Klup, who is who has a background in special education, is a consultant and author of 10 books related to inclusive education. Good morning, Paula. Good morning, Lori. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, the third member of our panel is Kathleen McClaskey. Kathleen is, has over 29 years of experience using technology to level the playing field for students with special needs. Hello, Kathleen. Uh, Good morning from the East Coast. Um, Lisa Jo Rudy also joins our panel this morning. Lisa is a parent, author of a book on inclusive community activities, and consultants on alternative learning styles. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Lori. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, Thanks for asking. Um, Frances Stetson is also here with us today. Frances has been a classroom teacher and has held various leadership roles with organizations such as the U.S. Department of Education. Her company currently oversees the Inclusive Schools Network. Good morning, Frances. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. I'm looking forward to a great conversation this morning. Me too. Um, next is Tori Dunlap. Tori has an extensive background working with community groups to create inclusive opportunities and is a CEO for the organization Kids Included Together. Hello, Tori. Hi, I'm just thrilled to be here with you all this morning. And finally, I'm pleased to inter- introduce Mary Ulrich. Ma Mary is a parent advocate and former professor at Miami University where she taught courses to education students about inclusion. Welcome, Mary. Hello,
0: what a great panel.
3: It's really amazing. Um, thank you. Our topic for discussion today is how can parents educators and communities respond when schools say no to inclusion. One of the biggest roadblocks to inclusion is the lack of knowledge that schools may have about inclusive education. There are so many myths surrounding inclusive education that might cause a misunderstanding and unwillingness to embrace inclusion. Tom, can you please tell us what some of these common myths are and debunk them for us?
4: Yes, I can. Thank you. Myths exist because they sound intuitively correct and they they support stereotypical thinking. The facts, though, are clearly supported by real-world evidence. The most persistent myth is that somehow inclusion jeopardizes the education of the other students, that it's disruptive and compromises the quality of education um, the, the thinking is that inclusion is achieved at the expense of the students who are not disabled um, it's like these kids uh, deserve an education but in their own classrooms so the other students won't suffer well research dating back nearly 50 years has made it clear that supported inclusive education benefits the students with special needs. There's there's not much question about that. Segregation of most learners with disabilities is restrictive because as a group, students with disabilities who are integrated perform significantly better and achieve far more than their peers with disabilities who are segregated. And, and that's why Thirty-seven years ago, Congress viewed segregation as restrictive, resulting in the least restrictive environment provision of the law. But I have to say that after 43 years in special education, I'm convinced that inclusive education benefits the students who are developing typically even more than it benefits students with disabilities. Um, There are so many ways, new friendships, a realistic view of the real world, learning that diversity exists, positive and understanding and appreciating individual differences. Students who are not disabled, as a result of inclusive education, learn how to accept and deal with the disabilities likely to be faced by their families, their friends, themselves, later in life. Um, they come away with more positive attitudes and interactions with others, um, positive self-concept, independence, self-advocacy. Uh, there are so many opportunities for leadership and uh, supporting their peers with special needs, uh, interacting with special educators and other support service providers. Um Kids who are not disabled have an opportunity to engage with enriching instructional methods and activities and materials and technology that's all in place to support the kids with disabilities. Um, We have absolute evidence, conclusive evidence, that the kids who are not disabled consistently demonstrate improved Performance resulting from universal design for learning, um, they uh, we we see improved academic performance on national standardized test scores. Um, they learn they learn about empathy, they learn compassion, they learn how to support others, and they benefit from uh, enriching friendships with with kids with disabilities. The the, the second myth that um, Uh, is often uh, embraced by the general public is that uh, somehow um, we are supposed to place all students with disabilities into general education settings regardless of the nature or severity of their disabilities. Um, Some people refer to it as full inclusion. Um, The fact is that The federal law does not mandate that we place every single student with a disability into a regular class setting. What the law mandates is that all students with disabilities receive a free, public-appropriate education in the most appropriate, least segregated environment. And, in fact, um, uh, I can tell you that the law... Far from mandating that, that we place all students with disabilities in a regular classroom, um, actually mandates that um, that school districts make available to students with special needs and their families uh, half a dozen placement options. Only two of which directly involve the regular classroom, but over eighty percent of students with disabilities are engaged in those those two alternatives. Uh, A third myth, Um, segregating students with disabilities has been effective. This is the if it's not broken, why fix it argument. Well, the outcomes of systematic segregated special education are unacceptable. Uh, We see denial of civil rights, learned helplessness, Social distancing, diminished quality of life. Adults with disabilities who were taught separately uh, year, uh, over the years are, are the least employed, poorest, least educated, most excluded of all Americans. In fact, five decades. Of research uh, demonstrate the benefits of integration, and, and it's 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 consistent with the the 1954 Supreme Court ruling, Brown versus Board of Education. Separate is not equal. Right. Myth number four: the cost of including students with special needs is prohibitive. We can't afford it. Well, schools that successfully achieve supported inclusive education are Uh, They fall into three categories. One, they're saving money because segregation is very expensive. Two, they're spending the same amount as they spent when they taught the kids separately. Or three, they're reporting national average increases in budget of about 3%, which is hardly prohibitive. The fact is that segregated schools and segregated classes are far more expensive Than providing quality support services. Um, There are um, uh, just four other myths that I'll I'll touch on real briefly and and pass on to my colleagues. Um, One of those myths is that uh, I'm sorry, but but they have nothing to do with me. This is the uh, them and us mindset. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that this is about all of us. Um, We all become disabled due to aging, unless we die first. And any one of us may become severely disabled due to injury or illness. This is the one minority group we all get to join and what we do to improve quality of life for people with disabilities. Ultimately, we're doing for ourselves, for our neighbors, for our families, for our communities. the myth that education that inclusion is just another educational fad, and the pendulum will swing back to segregated education, um, I, I think it's unlikely that we'll ever go back um, to where we were, say, 37 years ago, um, when idea of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act was first passed. A return to completely segregated special education would take the repeal of two constitutional amendments, the Fifth the and Fourteenth Amendments, due process, equal protection under the law. It would take the repeal of nearly 40 years of legislation and overturning nearly 50 years of, of court cases. This isn't a fad. This is this is um, uh, the new normal, Um The uh, two remaining myths, real quickly. People with disabilities are an unfortunate drain on society. Uh, My response to that myth is that considering the way society limits the lives of people with disabilities it's the other way around society has been a drain on people with disabilities and certainly significant contributions made by people with special needs to families schools and communities are well documented and the very last myth i want to mention quickly um future teachers are told don't go into special education it's being phased out because of inclusion Um, the number of segregated settings for students with special needs has decreased this is people see the bricks and mortar fading out but the fact is um there is a worldwide nationwide shortage of special educators um the fact is that uh we uh need people to go into special education more than ever before uh the bottom line there is that Special education is now less of a place where we send kids and more of a service that comes to the students with special needs.
2: Thank you very much, Tom, for your insight and all of your thoughts. We appreciate it. And um some of the points that you made would certainly resonate with our audience members for for uh, you know, years to come. Uh, Lori, do we have a question yes. for Paula now? Yes, yes.
3: Um, hi, Paula. Um, Hello. All, uh, um, so, well, often a school might support inclusion, but teachers might be reluctant or or quite simply don't know where to begin. Can, can you describe some strategies that a teacher can easily use to become more inclusive?
1: Sure. Um, I'm going to first uh, direct folks to – talk about some some resources so since i'm going to keep this very brief i may be asking you to go to materials on the website and so on but um i want to talk first about um what something tom said which is that the research is in our corner so to speak now you know when i started we were talking about the moral reasons and the rationale which i still believe in but we have all this rich research now So one of the strategies actually is to bring some of these studies to teachers and to the administrators and talk about what it means. I often say, you know, it's one thing to sort of have that compelling conversation from the heart but now I simply say, well, let's look at this piece of research together about how kids with and without disabilities profit. And if this is true and we now have really compelling and consistent research, um, what, what could we do about it? You know, really helping people buy in from that perspective versus, um, you know, the same kind of arguments that we've used before. So I think that's, that the research itself is a strategy. And school boards would be another group I would involve in that. Um, uh, I, have, I always say this, but I always think that um, one of my favorite studies is George um, and Julie C. O. Harris, and yeah. people could kind of Google search T H E O H A R I S, and the work that they're doing in a program called Schools of Promise, where they're showing inclusion as a model for school reform. So I had to give a plug for Julie and George there.
3: I read that. It's exciting.
1: It, exciting. It's exciting across the stuff, board. Right? Yeah. yeah, and they're not yeah. the only ones doing it, and they would be the first to say that, but that that more and more we're looking at inclusion as a way to sort of bring up the performance of all kids. Um, number two is to start a, a conversation in your school, start to ask why questions. And so um, and this, this doesn't have to be big and scary. I mean, I'm talking about simple things like why do we have kids? We're calling ourselves inclusion inclusive and we want to do inclusion but we still have kids with disabilities eating all together at the lunch table. Why do we have kids um, going in one entrance, kids with disabilities go in one entrance because of their busing and other, their, their classmates go in another entrance? Um, do we have kids with different passing times? And we don't really question do all kids need that? Is that something that we've always done? Um, You know, how come we don't have any kids with disabilities working at the school store? So I would just do sort of an assessment and start saying, like, one by one, let's look at every element where we could be inclusive. Um, I also talk about, um, uh, in in some new talks I've been doing with with schools, is to start asking parents as a more discreet strategy. And so not just asking parents for ideas, but I think one of the simple ways to get this going in your school, if you do feel lost but you feel positive about it, you know, ask parents specifically, is your child, where is your child included? And if they say church or brownies or they're in a track team or they're at the, you know, they're, they're in the swim team at the Y, ask for specifically how was that person supported there. Okay. You know, a lot of us remember that Oberti case years ago, and that's how they made a lot of gains was looking at how he was included in Sunday school. Um, so get supports there. Um, go and get a tour is another strategy. We have all of these virtual tools. We have Skype. We have Twitter. You know, use social media. Follow websites of inclusive schools. And if you can't actually travel, call schools and say, would you be willing to do a virtual tour for us? We need to know how to include kids in second grade. Will you help us? For a lot of schools Great. that are, have this as a mission, they are willing to help and support you, and they want to provide that coaching. It helps them as well. So if, you have, if you, you're have you just starting out, you feel positive, but you're lost, there are a lot of places out there that are doing this. Work with local organizations to find out where they are and if they would be your virtual or your coach um, as you take a, a visit um, in person. Um, and then finally, I always say, you know, just do it. That Nike, I'm stealing that from Nike. But yeah. I think, you know, even though I'm one that says a plan is always important and I believe in a lot of space and time for co-teaching and meeting and things like that. Sometimes I feel like we wait too long to plan. There are things that that participants can go and do today. You can go and ask. You know, why do we have these clusters of kids? I was in one school and all the kids were going down, kids without disabilities, in an inclusive school once a week to have pizza with kids with disabilities in a, in a specialized classroom.
3: <laughs>
5: and
1: so um, I said, well, you know, and they were actually had a budget item for it, like they were spending money to have kids have lunch together. And so I said, you know, we could change this today. We could, we could put it in our plan, and we could make notes about it, and we could talk about it again, or we could change it today where all kids eat lunch together every single day. So sometimes it starts with the small things. And, um, you know, and the last thing I'll say is um, that you can do a lot of co-teaching models on the fly. You also don't have to wait for a full-fledged till your district goes to co-teaching. So Start having conversations with each other today. Figure out is there anybody that I could start working with, even in the smallest steps, to make school different today than it was yesterday.
3: That's that's great, and I've noticed that schools that do practice inclusive education are so eager to share with with other schools because it uh, works, it's so great.
1: And it helps them too. You know, like I said, yeah. I said there's I, I don't want to say any more because I know we have a lot to get to, but there I don't want to put a plug, but there's a lot more writing on this on on my website, and we'll 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 post that up for people to see.
3: Oh, thank you very mm-hmm. much, and um. I'm sorry, Nicole. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
1: No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I was
2: going to say I, I, I agree, and um, we'll definitely make sure that any of the resources that people mentioned today will be up on the website. So, thank you, Paula, for all those very practical strategies. Thanks,
3: Nicole. And and Lisa. Um, good morning. Hi. Uh, hi. hi. Uh, so, if it becomes clear that inclusion isn't happening at the classroom level. What other types of, of activities or events could students access and become a part of?
5: Oh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I am the mom of a child with PDD and OS,
4: and okay.
5: uh, we pushed for inclusion in the schools and found that there were always issues that would get in the way, whether there were issues or they were um, just the reality that we have a son for whom verbal and is tough. So he Mm -hmm. would wind up being taught by his aide, which was not an acceptable option. Or homeschooled him for a period of time, um, and that was an opportunity for us. So we've found uh, that the best way for us, and a way that works very well for a lot of people, is to find um, opportunities that I like to call authentic inclusion opportunities within the larger community. And by that I mean many of our children, most, I would say virtually 100% of our children, have areas of strength. Those areas tend not to be uh, the ability to learn verbally in a room full of 20-age peers while somebody stands in the front of the room and talks to you and then times you as you answer the questions appropriately. (laughs) Um, But they may be areas like uh, my son happens to be a good musician. Uh, They may be areas uh, (coughs) of uh, um, sports or um, hiking or uh, building with Legos or any number of areas of strength where, in fact, the person with autism is as skilled or even more skilled than the other kids in the room. Right, and so the opportunity then uh presents itself for your child to be involved not in the in the way that, for example, a best buddies program would include your child um you know in, in a sort of a well, we're going, going to be kind to the poor child who needs our help, but rather actually and fully and authentically included because their contribution is significant. Um, and so what we've been able to do, and we kind of got behind and pushed and, and looked for opportunities and coached and supported where it was needed, but we've been able, for example, to um, have our son included in school jazz band, and he was good enough that he was able to do some solo playing and is now involved in the, uh, pro- programs. Um, he is He loves building with Legos, as many kids with autism do, and many of them are very skilled at it. Well our county fair has a 4H division for Lego sculptures. Oh, right. So he was able to enter his sculptures and by golly he won the blue ribbon. And oh, that's wonderful. But here yeah, mm-hmm. we didn't need to say this is a child with special needs. We were right. able to say this is a child who happens to have tremendous skill with building fabulous things with Legos. Right. So, you know, as Tom would go and sort of pose in front of it, other kids would say, wow, how did you do that? (laughs) Um, I know kids with autism who are terrific um, bowlers or who are golfers or who are swimmers or who are, you know, there's a huge range of of interests and abilities, and because our kids tend to be very passionate and intense about whatever they love, they're often extremely good at it. So that's one road to inclusion. Uh, The other road to inclusion is more organizational or institutional, and um, many organizations right now uh, outside of the school are working very hard to include both children and teens and and to to a more limited degree adults with autism um, trying to figure out how to make it work because, as you may already know, um, kids with autism are included willy-nilly at the Y, at at summer camps, in museums, in zoos, they're, they're here. I mean, it's it's kind of a, I mean, they're, they're there anyway. Right. Um, the question is not how do we include these kids, but how do we make it work? Um, and so what has happened is that there's been a bit of a groundswell of interest in figuring out how to create either, um, in some cases specialized, but in many cases inclusive programs that allow kids with autism to access the existing programs in a positive way. So in some cases, for example, with the Y, um, many YMCAs have on staff um, occupational therapists who work often with seniors in the pools. And there, you know, there's quite a few now that include uh, will include an occupational therapist in the water uh, in, a, in a regular swim class so that kids who need a little extra help get it. Uh,
3: right.
5: Same same thing with camp programs that you know there's often the ability to either have mm-hmm. an aid included with the, essentially with the staff or uh, to have a larger staff to student ratio or camper ratio, and a lot of wives are willing to do that. They can raise a little bit of funds or you know alternatively charge a little bit more, but the camps are usually pretty um, affordable. Mm-hmm. So that that type of thing is becoming more and more of interest. Um, I've been working with the Children's Museum of Boston, uh, training their staff so that they can recognize and work with families who have kids with autism, so that they can kind of say, hey, you know, it looks to me like your little one is getting a little overwhelmed. There's a, another place over here that's a little bit quieter.
6: Oh, that's great.
5: That type of thing. And I also was delighted to be involved with a project through the Children's Museum where they... Um, we put together a guide to uh, for after-school providers um, because the museum works a lot with after-school programs in the Boston area um, on how to include kids with autism in after-school. One reason all this works as well as it does is that um, so often our kids with autism are, you know, it, it's, it's funny. I think uh, uh, Tony Atwood said something about how uh- you know people with Asperger's syndrome are only disabled in the wrong situation <laughs> right. right like and, anyone yeah exactly, and it yeah. is that the school our a present school setting in the United States is about as challenging as any setting could possibly be because it is so filled with transitions and timing and noise and expectations of instantaneous response uh whereas Almost everywhere else in the world isn't. Nobody minds if you take an extra few seconds to bowl the ball down the down the lane. It's it's a non-issue, and you know the same is true in a lot of situations where it's it's fine to take a little longer or to do it a little differently. It's a non-issue, um, and, and again, you know, in terms of museums and music and art and all of these other areas, often these are areas of strength for our kids. Where they are as good at or as or better than um, other kids at getting to you know really engaging with those activities because they learn differently, they think differently, and they have different talents so it's it's quite an exciting way to get involved and to give your child the opportunity for authentic inclusion as opposed to kind of the artificially created inclusion that happens when you do something like best buddies or a right. social skills group where we're all supposed to be friends but have nothing in common. Right, uh, and we found that to be very, very difficult because there's no way to follow up on that. It's not an authentic friendship. It's simply two people in the same place at the same time.
3: Right, right. right. Um, Thank you, Lisa. And um, that, that's wonderful and very helpful. And um, I have a question for Kathleen. We want to get everyone in, and then we can discuss, hopefully, a little bit more at the end. But. Kathleen, what types of software or technology is available that might help create a learning environment that is more um, accessible to a wider variety of learners?
7: Well, that's an excellent question, and I'm um, prepared to answer that question. Um, just want to give just a little bit of background. Um, one of the... Um, philosophies and curriculum design that I follow is universal design for learning. And I knew that Tom mentioned that at the beginning, uh, but I do want to mention that again uh, to the parents that are listening or even the teachers that are listening on this call. So uh, everyone should take a really close look about universal design for learning uh, because it does happen to help you uh, drive the use of tools uh, to support a variety of learners. So um, let me just say that um, there is a broad range of tools now to really support every type of learner um, on the planet. Um, I happen to curate on a topic uh, online called leveling the playing field with apps, and I'm going to introduce uh, in this particular call some uh, apps and some tools that have been highly effective for many students. So. Um, If you happen to have an iPad, an iPod, um, an iPod Touch, you are truly empowered with a tool that can really remove barriers to learning uh, in a very rapid way. So let me introduce that. On those devices, um, we have what's called the operating system is IOS. That's the latest operating system. In that system, you actually have a thing called Speak Selection. And Speak Selection gives you the ability to actually select any text that appears on your device and have it read to you. Um, The iOS 6 also has a tool that will highlight the word uh, as it reads. So we know that that multisensory experience is important for students that struggle in reading. Um, It also includes uh, dialects. So that's an absolutely free tool that exists right on your um, device if you happen to have one of those. We know that uh, iPads are being used uh, by a broad range of learners, Um, you know, regardless of what the challenge happens to be. And I do want to tell you that in my uh, search for apps for um, individuals that may be blind or may actually have some physical disability or may have hearing impairments, there are apps absolutely for everyone. Uh, with every type of challenge, uh, I have a personal philosophy that every one of us has uh, some challenge, but all of us have strengths. And right. I really love to hear when I was listening to about how you really work from the, the point of strengths uh, is really important. Uh, just to give you some other ideas about what types of apps are included in these tools, is I want to introduce this thing called Read to Go. Uh, Read2Go is an app that Bookshare happens to put out to make their textbooks and reading um, accessible. And Read2Go has a cost, uh, but everyone should know about Bookshare. So if you have a child with a visual or print disability, you have the right to have access to digital media of any type of textbook or reading material. So Bookshare is a repository of 150,000 books um that are accessible to all anyone with those types of disabilities. Um Read to Go is the app that you can use to download those books and have that book read to you in different modalities. So uh I definitely wanted everyone to know about that particular app because um a lot of people a lot of people a lot of parents don't know that you have the legal right to have every piece of material uh, accessible to your uh, child uh, who have visual disabilities. Wow. So, um, Some other apps, by the way, for uh, children that struggle with reading would be an app called Voice Dream Reader. Uh, there happens to be a light version of that, but there also happens to be a full version of that that's not very costly. But that particular reader will read in 55 different languages, um, it has uh, translation, um, it has full text search, and you change all sorts of um, speed on the reading. So that's a really excellent app, and I always advise people to, to look at the light version of those types of apps. That's um, wonderful. Yeah, so, but if I... I'm just going to go on just for, just for just a few minutes around uh, Thanks, that may support writers. Uh, Everyone that I know um, has Dragon Dictation on their phone or their iPad right now, and Dragon Dictation is a speech that helps you write. And a lot of times kids have a hard time writing uh, things down, but they may be able to speak it. So Dragon Dictation would be a wonderful tool uh, to support that. Um, I do want to make everyone aware of a uh, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, when I was talking with nicole um, I was mentioning um, about accessible instructional materials and if you uh, if you have a pen or a pencil, i'm going to give you a site that you every parent that has a child with a disability should know about is aim uh, a i m dot cast, C-A-S-T dot org um, and basically, AIM is all about accessible instructional materials. And, again, there is our IDEA law that actually basically says that you have to provide digital media and accessible instructional materials to every learner that's identified under IDEA. Wow. Um, this particular site actually has a wonderful navigator that helps uh The teachers or parents decide about the the accessible instructional materials for individual students, and so you should know about that. There's an excellent uh, video, by the way, on that particular site that says um, that basically I saw just the other day, uh, accessible instructional materials simply said, which will really help you understand about what AIM is and um, what it means to students with disabilities. One of the things that I always like to point out is, um, you know, in trying to develop an inclusive environment, I've worked with teachers for well over 20 years with students with a variety of challenges. And um, one of the things that we have to do is help teachers understand about uh, not to look at this child, child with a disability, but looking at that child as a learner first. So my famous quote is, um, if you remove the veil of disability, you will discover the learner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I will tell you that that really does help out classroom teachers. Right. Uh, develop a different perception of who those children are in her classroom. So um, i think I'm that's a big believer in that. So. so
3: important, so important for all of us. Um,
7: but, and I'm sorry, excuse me. Uh, I just want to close out because I know that yeah. you, you have a time factor here. But uh, if you really want to take a look at all the different types of apps that can support a variety of challenges that children have, just go to, I mean, I don't like to promote my site, but it really does have a, a one-stop shopping, a one-stop view of every type of app to support every disability. It's called leveling. If you just do a Google search, leveling the playing field with apps, you'll um come to that site so
3: i can attest to that everyone listening i have gone to the site and really really relied on it so it it is very very helpful um,
2: um
3: and so francis um sometimes uh if the structure of the entire it, it can be the structure of the entire school system that puts up, up barriers to inclusion in the community how could the school district create a more inclusive system do you have any ideas for that
8: Oh, um, I do, and and we've been privileged to work with hundreds of school districts around the country in doing just that. And so, I'll, I'll quickly share the the main parts of of, of this. But I want to add a, um, um, a message that if you will also log on the Inclusive Schools Network there is a, an enormous section of resources across just a variety of subjects that are both important uh, to school administrators, uh, teachers, and to parents about just those structures that need to be in place and those strategies. So much of what I'll talk about in my um Segment here is actually accompanied by a number of resources that are completely free, and, and please download them and, and use them for yourselves and your schools. All right, what would what are those systems issues that uh, you want to see occur in a school that is uh, working toward being uh, really successful in including including youngsters? And here they go. First, I find that uh, we have to really work on the whole notion of shared ownership. Um, That's coming up front and center. Uh, As we've looked at adequate yearly progress and accountability for the learning of all children, I'm seeing a very positive movement now that has administrators thinking, why is there an achievement gap between all of our children versus those of children who are receiving some level of special ed service or have a disability? And often the conclusion, the very honest this conclusion is that we don't have a sense of shared responsibility for all of our learners across all of our educators. So, within that, uh, if you must have a sense of shared ownership in a school district, uh, we are talking at this point about the superintendent, the school board, the cabinet, and the principals and the faculty, of course. But at the very top, there has to be explicit me- explicit message that we are. We uh an inclusive school district, and each of our schools is inclusive and it is a system wide expectation so that's a very, very important piece of it um The next thing um, would be uh in working through that when you know now that my school is expects my administrators expect this to be a a an inclusive school, and as I'm an employee of that district, it's part of my role. One of the things that really makes a difference, and it makes a difference in a hurry, is if there's an effort to work toward a common vocabulary about what inclusion is. Uh, I'm sure many of you recognize that if you ask a room full of people to define inclusion, you might come up with um, 20, 30, 40 different definitions of the same practice. And when that happens, you don't see a lot of forward movement in a district because we all see it differently. So one of the things, the structures that you want to see in a school system is, again, at the top, you want to be able to to say what is inclusion, what it is not, what are the characteristics of quality inclusion in our district. And I thought um, uh, that one of the things that, that I would connect to that is as you move from common vocabulary Wonderful things happen for children when we look at the transition from school to school to school. I'm sure many parents and teachers have had the experience of a child having a fairly nice program and, and, and set of services that really support them. Let's say at the elementary school, they move to middle school and middle school says, we don't do that. Or we, we only have this type of service. And, and it really uh, bumps the kid around and, and we lose far, forward movement. So that common vocabulary and an understanding of quality practice. This, this is critical. Uh, the other thing I began to learn uh, in the last several years that um, uh, we, we kind of know the why for all of us, so we just move on to the how. And I, I've been looking a lot at the change literature most recently, and it says, you know, maybe we've missed that step. And, and I thought Tom at the beginning of the program did an excellent job of the why we implement inclusive education. It's very compelling reasons. There are no arguments. How could you not? Uh, how could you um, reject it? And uh, so much of the research that, that's been cited in this in this session so far. But answering the why question. The other thing that I would say is the one, one of the most difficult is for us is that the fourth element is a consistent, fair, and I'm going to underline this phrase, student-centered process mm-hmm. for determining the supports that are needed. Mm-hmm. Um, we can say we uh, implement inclusive education, but if we're not careful and we're not really specific about what this individual child needs in order to be supported, um, we may over support. We may under support. Um, and so, one of the things that I would want to add here that I still uh, seem, I feel, some frustration about that I think is is uh, work yet to be done, is when we say consistent, fair, student centered process. I think many of us are still leaning toward the old labels. Um, And in the old days, we said, yes, we have self-contained classrooms for children with disabilities. And now we're moving and saying, yes, every child gets co-teaching. Well, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's another box we're putting kids in. Not every Uh child needs co-teaching. And so that seems to me uh, to really underscore the importance of individualizing this so that every child has what they require, what they need in order to be successful. Um, I would mention very quickly because it's a it's a big subject, but that is the the whole notion of professional development. In school after school that we work with, we have a lot of teachers that say, "I don't know how." to be more inclusive in my classroom. I don't know what that means. I have a lot of accountability placed on me for right. my youngsters and performing well. And I want to say this is absolutely critical. And in the last few years with budget cuts, schools have not been uh, able to provide as much professional development. And we're going to have to get back on that. We're going to have to have meaningful uh, professional development um, and we're going to have to go into the, at the coaching level so that we don't just say what, what strategies work, but we can actually model them and help problem solve with teachers. I, I would say this. I think most teachers, when parents run up to a barrier or um, educators see another educator that's reluctant, when you really sit down and talk with them, they're not often saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to implement inclusion. Mostly, most of the time they're saying, I don't know how. Right. And so I, I do see a lot of systems that are, are have we've just simply for a variety of reasons haven't spent as much attention uh, to professional development, and we need to really have a better handle on that. Um, I'm sorry, I interrupted sorry. you.
3: No, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I wanted to say that's a great point. I, I, yeah. I think that most people don't. It, when there is resistance, they just don't know how. Yes, exactly,
8: yeah, and so. They want but, and then, and then, I find in some of our workshops when we work with school districts that that the the teachers that <laughs> came in the door the most reluctant often leave the most excited
0: <laughs>
7: and energized great. because they have the skills.
8: Um, The last two points, very quickly, Um, I think that anything that, like, uh, is important, is critical, is inclusive practices. Uh, And especially when I started by saying at the very beginning that it needs to be a culture in the school district of shared ownership, we have to incorporate our expectations into an evaluation process. Uh, Schools need to be evaluated on the extent to which they're implementing successfully, implementing inclusive practices. It should be part of the principal's evaluation, part of the superintendent's evaluation, and part of the teacher's evaluation. What gets measured gets done, the old phrase, um, is is really important there. And I'm going to end with something that I'm excited about. Um, You know, I guess for years we've looked at the compliance level. Uh, Schools often get really fussed at. um, about compliance issues. And if we're not careful, and are and certainly I am absolutely want to be clear here, you cannot be, if you're not legal, you're not a quality school. So absolutely meeting the compliance um, standards. But I've been noticing something in the last several years that's just making me very excited about some pot- a potential, and that is my seventh step here is that you have to recognize and celebrate success when it happens. Um I've seen a number of schools recently that have um, actually uh, schools prepare a, a portfolios to show what they've done. They bring in parents and youngsters. They invite visits into their school to see what their practices look like and how well they're doing. And the excitement that you see around a school that is actually celebrating inclusive practices um instead of feeling like it's a really a punitive practice that, you know, even if it's important and even if it's the right thing, we can really be in trouble if we don't get it done, done right. Well, that's actually true. We should have those, that accountability. But we're going to have to start celebrating the good things that happen too. And when I see a system that does that, I can see more change more quickly across all of their schools than almost any other kind of <coughs> strategy that they use, so um those are my top my top seven and
4: thank you.
8: Uh, and I hope that everyone will go to the inclusive schools network and download all the the free tools and and examples for the some of the strategies that we mentioned here
3: absolutely thank you I, Thank you, yes. thank you mm-hmm. so much thank you. um. Tori, um, as we know, education and socialization doesn't just happen in the classroom. How can after-school programs become more inclusive and accessible?
6: That's a good question. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk about after-school programs in this conversation. I think after-school programs have a huge opportunity when it comes to both socialization and education for kids both with and without disabilities. I think they play a really vital role and, and from what I see, an often underutilized role in the development of a child. And when we talk about inclusion, I think what we really envision, what we all envision, are these communities where everyone is embraced, welcomed, and supported, and able to realize their own unique potential. And when we look at school communities, the after-school programs can and should play a role in that. And I would not Mm -hmm. call the school inclusive unless the before and after school program is really prepared to support the needs of all kids. So if a child who has a disability cannot attend or even perceives that they can't attend the after school program on campus, I think an inclusive school has not been achieved. Mm -hmm. And yet from what we've seen, they're often really left out of the school reform process. So the question you asked, Lori, is about how can the after-school programs become more inclusive and accessible, and I think one way is for the after-school staff to become more embedded with the school day staff. In terms of the professional development that's offered to teachers, can the after-school staff attend it also? Can they participate in the IEP process so that they can help support the child and family's goals in the after-school time? And also really by developing these strong relationships with classroom teachers so that they can use the same tools and accommodations that children use during school. We know that consistency is important for kids, and if there are consistent accommodations and supports and rules in the school, in the after-school program, and at home, then their chance for success is greatly increased. Uh, And this is the work that Kids Included Together does. We go in and we teach the after-school program staff how to include kids with a variety of abilities and needs, and we encourage them to partner with the school day staff and also to develop strong partnerships with families. And this is a really collaborative process, and yet we find there's still many people who are working individually on this. And it just kind of tickles me uh, that when we use the word inclusion, we're often not thinking about including families or our own colleagues, so that the process of inclusion is often not an inclusive process, if that makes any sense. <laughs> so yeah. we want to be inclusive with ourselves, too. Um, And really the biggest barrier for after-school programs being inclusive is um, fear. They often don't think they can do it. They think they need a special education credential or, as Tom said earlier on the call, there's a myth that the quality is going to suffer if they have to give what they perceive as all this extra attention to kids who have additional needs. So we really like to start with some good staff training, and we like to begin with a strong dose of the philosophy of inclusion, the why. Uh, the why we practice, as Francis talked about. And I think once we flip that switch in their heads that makes them know they can do this and they already possess everything they need, it's, it's a magical process. They need to see each child as an individual and differentiate their instruction. And once that attitude is there, then we can teach them the practices. Um, like putting structure in the unstructured time or, as Lisa said, looking at the transitions and why are those challenging and how can we support children through the transitions. And what they find is what we find in the research, that the quality increases and they become better at teaching everyone. They modify their materials, the activities, the environments. They get creative. They adjust the schedule. They use universal design for learning. Um, So I think all those same tools that we can use in the school day, we can apply to the after-school program. If we're looking at the after-school program as a valuable part of the school ecosystem, and we know they're necessary for parents, and we know they play a significant role in helping kids make friends and also giving them a chance to discover new interests and talents and really explore, like Lisa said, they may be really good at music or really good at Legos, and the after-school program is a place where that can really shine. And when the after-school staff are prepared and supported by the school day and the families, they really can do a wonderful job of creating an inclusive, accessible, and really fun place for kids to be.
3: I think that's great and so very important for for students, all students. And um, I'm sorry to um, move on, but, but I want no, to get Mary fine. in before. Yep. And, um, and Mary, um, thank you for... Being here, And um, I think we can all agree that um, the bottom line is inclusion is a civil right. And can you please give us your thoughts on that statement?
0: Well, um, you know, the term inclusion rel- has a relatively long history in the U.S. It's rooted in the civil rights movements that arose out of the struggle of people with color for their freedom, in, like the 1800s. But as Tom mentioned at the beginning, it's really based on the 14th Amendment. And what we've had to do is to prove that, number one, our children are citizens, they are human. Um, And I know that sounds really um, abrasive, but in the Ronker case, which was in Cincinnati, and it was the first case that went all the way to the federal Supreme Court that dealt with um, least restrictive environment, the school psychologist stood up there on the stand and said, um, Neil Ronker wouldn't know the difference if he was sitting next to a person or a rock. So, I mean, Ah. those are the kind of attitudes That we've had to prove We had to prove that they were people We had to prove that they were citizens Then we had to prove that um, Due process applied to them That even if you didn't have an, an, um, An IQ above 50 And you could read or write or talk Or if you were deaf or blind That if you couldn't pass the IQ test You still had the right to due process We also had to prove that if you had a disability, you were entitled to the same rights and benefits as the other people, the other children in the school, that um, if the other children in the school got to go to regular classes and have um, library time and had field trips, then you were included in that. So those were like the the basic, you know, first level of um, rights that we had to prove. And over the years, you know, as as all of you have, have said, you know, um, we have changed attitudes. We have learned so much about how people learn. Um, we no longer have to, to go down that path that says, you know, can a person with Down syndrome learn, which was, you know, one of the early studies. Um, but, you know, now we're in a much better state, but where's a school district that still refuses to do inclusion. What does a parent do? What does a teacher do? <clears throat> you know, what... I've put it into five points and I kind of outlined it on my um website the dot cuz I mean I, there's always so much to say and you never can get it all in. Right. But right. the five points are to number 1, learn the history of people with disabilities. Number 2, become an expert on IDEA. Number 3, build alliances. Number 4, learn about the educational evaluation that can be part of the IEP. And number five, you have to just be a badass, confident in whatever you're doing. <laughs>
1: I mean, I love it's
0: that. Just, the easiest is when the school district, you know, is, is wants to do inclusion and they're just looking for the how. But yeah. my experience has been that the school districts really do not want to do this, and they don't care about the how or the why. All they want to do is try to figure out how to get out of it. So what do you do? Um, skipping to the... Number four, the educational evaluation, what I, what we did in our case was we brought in some um, educational experts, and that can be part of the evaluation process. And we were fortunate enough to, at the time, Lou Brown had a dynasty of people up in University of Wisconsin-Madison. And um, so we brought those people in, and then they spent time with my son, Aaron, and they developed a... Um, an educational program just for him. The law says it has to be um, individually designed and it has to to prove that it will be individually beneficial. So, you know, all the philosophy and all the other stuff doesn't matter. You have to prove that it has an individual benefit. And you do that by, you know, having some of the experts that, um, you know, like on this panel, I mean, um, people who know about universal design and differentiation, we have the tools. We just have to show how it works for that individual. And then once you have that educational evaluation, um, then it's real easy to come up with IEP goals and you can move to the why and the how. Um, but if you don't have that individual um, knowledge base and, you know, you just have the standardized test or, you know, the school psychologist, you know, list of, well, I won't call I, I won't say what I think it is. <laughs> but um you know, the um you have to have something that is gonna be specific to what then you're gonna put on the IEP. And um then you can you know, if you have to, you can use the process and, and, and um move to the you know, the courts and all that other stuff. But what I found in working with other parents is that once they have that strong educational piece, then the school districts are like, okay, well now this isn't so scary, and then you know all the top-down stuff can fall into place. And then just to end, I wanted to say that you know the part about just being badass confident. I mean. Even though you're insecure or you're basically a shy person or whatever else, you want to have it so that when, when you walk down the hall and somebody sees you, they think this person is all about inclusion. They're all about all means all. This is about belonging. This is about community. And that's a really positive message. And so if you can make sure that your focus is on what you're going to achieve, not the I'm, you know, Angry at you? I'm going to sue you. I'm going to, you know, make you do what at this. But really focus on the common vision, and then if you have to, you know, use the the um, practices that, that partners in policy making that come out of the um, Minnesota DD Planning Council. Um, they have a program that is free. It's online. It's available to anybody who wants to do it, and um, it'll teach you all about the IEP. It also has just lots of information about the history of people with disabilities. Those are all measures that you you have to become an expert on, not only your own child, not only your own classroom, but you have to become an expert on the, um, the tools that you're going to use in order to make sure that people can do inclusion. That's
3: great advice. Um,
0: Nicole? Yes, yeah, um,
3: thank you. Oh sorry, go on Laurie. No, no, I just I um I want to thank everyone for being here and I know that, that you wanted to say something too at the end. I don't know about the time right now, so I was just checking Oh yes, with you on no.
7: That. We
2: are wrapping up and we are coming to the end of our time right now. Um, I just wanted to say thank you so very much to all of our panel members. Um your input was wonderful and I hope that our listeners have gained um, enough information to craft a response when they come, you know, up against schools that say no to inclusion. So I will uh, now end the show and turn it over to Terry. Yes, uh, thank you very much to all our guests this morning and to our facilitator Lori Hunt. I would like to thank our listeners for tuning into our program and to whoever it was who kept trying to call in and I kept hanging up on you. I am so sorry. We don't know how to screen calls yet. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed our roundtable and have learned ways in which you can respond if your school says no to inclusion. You can download this show to share or for future reference uh, from my website at www.mamatude.blogspot.com. Also, our show is now available on Stitcher and iTunes as a podcast for free download, so you can listen to it over and over again at your leisure. Uh, Goodbye, everybody, and have a great week. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you, Laurie, and thank you, panel members. It was a wonderful show. Thank you. you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Nicole?